From the Margins is sponsored by Visual Quill. Visual Quill is the award-winning creative agency that specializes in custom creative work for authors and publishers. From beautiful covers and trailers to marketing materials and consulting, Visual Quill helps authors and publishers get their books out and seen. Get in touch today. Go to visualquill.com, click on the contact button, and enter the special code, MARGIN, for a free consultation. That's visualquill.com. Offer code MARGIN. On a foggy, cold March night in 1888, a newly married doctor walks along London's gaslit streets. He looks up at a window on a familiar street and sees the silhouette of a tall man pacing behind the curtain. The man has his hands clasped behind him and he appears to be deep in thought. The doctor rings the bell of the apartment and he is shown up to the tall man's chamber by the landlady. And the door opens to familiar quarters, where the gaslight and coal fire are glowing. The corners of the room overflow with old newspapers, and each surface is cluttered with old weapons and obscure books. The tall man waves the doctor over to an armchair and tosses him a case of cigars. Then he stands in front of the fire and looks the doctor up and down and says, Wedlock suits you. I think, Watson, that you have put on seven and a half pounds since I saw you. Dr. Watson is shocked that Sherlock Holmes can guess this figure by just looking at him. Holmes adds that he can see that Watson is back in the medical practice and has a very clumsy servant girl. When Watson asks how Holmes could possibly know about the servant, Holmes chuckles to himself and explains that the inside of Watson's left shoe has six parallel marks that were obviously made by someone who carelessly scraped around the edges of the sole to remove mud. And as to knowing that Watson is back at his medical practice, Holmes says that he noticed a smudge of nitrate of silver on his right forefinger, the bulge on the right side of his top hat where he put his stethoscope. And also, Watson smells of ideoform. To all this, Watson just laughs. That was a description of the opening scene from Arthur Conan Doyle's A Scandal in Bohemia. And even for readers only somewhat familiar with the Sherlock Holmes books, the setting alone might have been enough to deduce who the characters were before they were named. 221 Baker Street is one of the most iconic literary settings in history, and its charm might be one of the reasons that Sherlock Holmes became such a well-loved character. Holmes comes with an entire world. This is Zach Dundas. The author of The Great Detective, The Amazing Rise and Immortal Life of Sherlock Holmes. And Zach thinks that the world Conan Doyle created may have had something to do with Holmes's popularity. There's Baker Street, there's Watson, there's Mrs. Hudson, their landlady. There are the Baker Street irregulars, the street urchins that he employs as his sort of unofficial detective force. There are the hapless Scotland Yard detectives that keep coming up. Inspector Lestrade is in a bunch of the stories acting as kind of a comic foil. Zach has done extensive research to explore why Sherlock Holmes's character has stood the test of time. While there had been detectives, there had never been a fully realized detective world or atmosphere to the degree that Conan Doyle was able to accomplish it in those stories. And he, he, by the way, didn't really mean to do that. It's one of the sort of great accidental achievements in literature. He put enough stuff in those stories that you can kind of imagine that they're real almost, or that they are a fully realized fictional world because there are lots of details that are either alluded to and not elaborated upon or are just hinted at enough that you think, oh, well, that sounds intriguing and helps flesh it out. Zach thinks that it was this fully fleshed out world that set the Sherlock Holmes stories apart from other stories from the crime genre of that time. It should be noted that many of the details we included in the description of a scandal in Bohemia were not actually mentioned in Conan Doyle's writing for this scene. We don't know if it was a foggy night. We don't know if Watson was traveling by foot or by hansom cab. We don't get a detailed description of the room. However, our description does fit the spirit of the legend of Sherlock Holmes, because the magic of the Sherlock Holmes phenomenon is that it builds off of itself from other people's interpretations and iterations of the text. It's a really interesting and kind of, when you think about it, weird thing that this Victorian detective 
continues to be fascinating to 21st century readers and viewers. And not only that, can be readily reinvented as a modern figure. Um, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch in, uh, in the BBC series portrays Holmes in the 21st century. Basil Rathbone portrayed Holmes as a 1940s character, and it all, it all works. So why have there been so many reinventions of this character? What aspects of Holmes's character have survived that weren't originally created by Conan Doyle? What made Sherlock Holmes stand the test of time? How does a writer create a legendary character? In this episode of From the Margins, we explore how to write characters. And maybe we can't all hope to create a legendary character, but how do we write a well-crafted character? Or a believable character? How do we write a character that a reader can relate to and care about? And what kinds of characters does the publishing industry need to work to include? In this episode, we hear stories that shed light on answers to these questions, though maybe not the kinds of detailed answers Sherlock Holmes might give. From Girl Friday Productions, you're listening to From the Margins, where we explore the story behind the story. I'm your host, Devin Fredrickson. In this podcast, people reveal the backstory that influences their writing, lives, and work. Because the most interesting part doesn't always make it onto the page. Sometimes it comes from the margins. Zach was 10 years old when he fell in love with the Sherlock Holmes books. And he's not alone in his avid fandom. There are countless Sherlock Holmes clubs, fan literature, and other organized homages to this legendary character. So how did Arthur Conan Doyle happen to luck out on creating such a memorable and adaptable character? Well, for starters, Conan Doyle had met someone in his own life who provided inspiration for the character. The character was initially based on a college professor that he had while he was studying at uh, Edinburgh University's medical school a doctor named Joseph Bell, who was actually a pioneering surgeon, uh, helped codify the nursing profession, really an innovative leader in his field at the time. But Bell had this thing that he would do in class where they would lead some poor, impoverished charity patient in, in front of all of his medical students, and he would diagnose them just by looking at them. That always stuck with Conan Doyle. He had been one of Bell's student assistants. He idolized him as a professor. So he wanted to write about a character who did that same thing. Here's Zach reading from his book. It should be noted that variations of the following scene show up in almost every Arthur Conan Doyle biography. And Zach's is a composite of two different scenes, but it's representative of the way Dr. Joseph Bell is always portrayed. Conan Doyle lined up the patients, 70 or 80 at a time, and marshaled them in one by one for Bell's examination. A patient wandered into the gaslight without speaking a word. Bell looked at him. I see you're suffering from drink, he rasped at the poor codger. You even carry a flask in the inside breast pocket of your coat. Cobbler, I see, Bell curtly informed the next man. Observe, gentlemen, the distinctive pattern of wear on the inside of the trouser knee. He rests his lapstone there. A limping veteran took his turn. Well, my man, Bell barked at him. You've served in the army. Aye, sir. Not long discharged? No, sir. A Highland regiment? Aye, sir. A non-commissioned officer? Aye, sir. Stationed at Barbados? Aye, sir. Gentlemen! Bell whipped around to face the students. You see that this man has a respectful air about him, but did not remove his hat. One does not do so in the army. If he'd been long discharged, he'd have learnt civilian ways. He displays an authoritative manner and is obviously Scottish. As to Barbados, his complaint is elephantitis, which is West Indian. Anyone who reads a Sherlock Holmes story recognizes this method. And and when you watch Benedict Cumberbatch or Johnny Lee Miller portray the character on TV now, they're doing this constantly, sort of looking at the most trifling details of a person or a place and making these huge, elaborate deductions based on what they see. So we can credit Dr. Joseph Bell with some of Holmes's characteristics. And as to why Conan Doyle decided to write the stories in the first place? The reason that he decided to write a detective story is because he wanted to sell a book. He was a young doctor and budding part-time writer. He'd had a lot of success with short stories, but he realized he would never really make it in writing unless he could publish a book. He'd written an unsuccessful novel that had been rejected 
all over town. And he recognized that the detective genre, which was just then kind of coming into its own as a popular genre, was a way in which he could almost guarantee himself a sale of a novel. So between his aspirations to get published and his memories of Joseph Bell, he concocted this character that he knew would be marketable and memorable. And one of the key ingredients to making a character that is both marketable and memorable is choosing a good name. He almost called Sherlock Sharon Ford, which is um, an absolutely puzzling name that he fortunately discarded. Dr. Watson's original name was Ormond Sacker, and these names survive on this sort of scribbled batch of notes that Conan Doyle made as he was conceiving of the first novel, A Study in Scarlet. Fortunately, he thought better of both of those names. Sherlock Holmes, uh, no one quite knows exactly where that name came from, but there was a very prominent cricket player at the time named Sherlock, and Conan Doyle was an avid cricket fan. There was a doctor named Dr. Watson in the Edinburgh Medical Faculty who was an expert on gunshot wounds and a very close colleague of Dr. Bell's. So there's some speculation that that was what suggested the name. But I think really what he wanted was he wanted a name for his detective that was completely unforgettable and a name for the sidekick that sounded like it could just be anybody. I think inadvertently Conan Doyle was a branding genius because the name Sherlock Holmes has this kind of popping rhythm to it that you never forget. It looks really cool on a page. There's no one else named Sherlock. You've never met anyone named Sherlock, so you can't help but notice the name. And Watson does have this kind of solid sound to it, which is what the character John Watson is all about. Landing on a good name can seem like a piece of cake compared to actually developing the meat and bones of the character. How does one go about finding inspiration for a character? Conan Doyle was inspired by the work of another writer whom he admired. Conan Doyle was a huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe. And Edgar Allan Poe had written the first, what are considered the first three real mystery stories back in the 1840s. By the time Conan Doyle wrote in the 1880s, they were quite old. But if you read Poe's detective stories, Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Purloined Letter, and The Mystery of Marie Roget are the three, they all feature a detective named Auguste Dupin, who's French. Dupin has a sidekick, and he and his sidekick are basically prototypes of Holmes and Watson. Very, very obvious homage being paid in Conan Doyle to those two characters. And like many writers, Conan Doyle drew from his own experience. There were certainly elements of Conan Doyle's own life and family experience that he brought to bear. He was from a family of artists. Everyone in his family, all the men in his family for sure, were artists, some of them quite prominent. And he fashioned Holmes as this weird hybrid of scientist and artist. He made a big deal about how Holmes's deductive method was scientific, and that was kind of what he was getting from Bell. But Holmes's behavior is completely crazy artist territory. Um, and he's constantly talking about how he needs to have a crazy new case because otherwise he'll die of boredom. He's always, you know, he's shooting up cocaine. He's wearing crazy clothes. He's playing violin at all hours. He's basically this bohemian artist figure. And I think Conan Doyle was both riffing on that, making fun of it a little bit, paying tribute to it a little bit. These are elements of, of culture that he would have been exposed to. He's bringing a lot of different shades of uh, his own experience, his idea of what a, a cool and interesting detective would be, and um, some, some direct tributes slash appropriations from Edgar Allan Poe. So Conan Doyle invented a great character, but there were other factors at play that contributed to the rise in popularity of Sherlock Holmes. The best way for Conan Doyle to make money off of Sherlock Holmes was to write a series of short stories that were connected but could stand alone. It was a sort of an innovative idea. There were lots of serial novels running in the magazines of Victorian England at the time. There were lots of short stories, but no one had really figured out how to bridge the gap and create a, a character that would recur again and again in stories, and yet each story would stand on its own as something people could just read without having to have read the previous installments. So Conan Doyle sold the idea to The Strand magazine, which was the big magazine of the moment. The Strand hired Sidney Paget, who was a young, up-and-coming illustrator at the time. Paget, maybe even more than Conan Doyle, can be credited with giving Sherlock Holmes his signature image. Paget took Conan Doyle's descriptions, which are not particularly physically exacting. I mean, you can kind of interpret Holmes in your mind's eye in different ways. And created this sort of handsome, elegant figure, this, this very muscular, very fashionable, sort of sleek and very poised looking character in his illustrations, which also 
evoke a lot of the atmosphere that people associate with Sherlock Holmes, the fog-bound streets, the gaslight, um, the beautiful Victorian clothing, um, the sort of vivid, crazy-looking villains. A A lot of that has a pretty firm basis in what Paget did. Paget also put the iconic deerstalker cap on Sherlock Holmes for the first time. That happens actually again and again in the, in the story of Sherlock Holmes where someone else comes up with an idea that then becomes part of the Sherlock Holmes image that we all know. An actor named William Gillette, who was the first actor to become truly famous for playing Holmes, introduced the large pipe that we associate with Holmes. He also was the one who codified elementary, my dear Watson, as the specific thing that Holmes says all the time. Holmes says elementary in Conan Doyle's stories. He says, my dear Watson. He never says that phrase exactly. Gillette put that together and made that the catchphrase. And then Basil Rathbone took it up in the 1940s, and and it has become the signature Sherlockian phrase, even though it appears nowhere. That kind of happens again and again with the character. There's all these things that are not in the original stories that are part of the Sherlockian lore. This includes a handful of characters who only appear in Conan Doyle's stories a couple of times, if that. One of whom is Holmes's famed nemesis, Moriarty. Well, Moriarty's an interesting thing to look at because he's barely in the stories. He really makes an appearance only in one sort of offstage in another one, and yet he's become part of the myth. Again, unintentionally, I think, it was brilliant of Conan Doyle to imagine a criminal as talented as Sherlock Holmes. That's how Sherlock Holmes himself describes Moriarty, that, that, that of all the criminals in the world, this is the one who is the brain power to go head to head with Sherlock Holmes. And so Moriarty's become kind of key to the mythology of Holmes, even though he's barely in the stories. And that, by the way, interestingly, happens with other characters as well. Holmes's brother Mycroft, barely in the stories, looms large in the sort of popular myth of Sherlock Holmes, the smarter older brother. Irene Adler, who is one of the very few strong female characters, is only in one story, and she's barely in that. But she, too, because she is the woman who defeats Sherlock Holmes and appears to be the only woman that he has any sort of possibly romantic but certainly affectionate feelings for, she is also kind of key to the myth now and has been reimagined and imagined in many different ways. That was one of Conan Doyle's strange talents. He could create these minor characters that seemed intriguing enough to keep thinking about over and over again. In addition to the villain and the love interest, every hero needs a sidekick. And without Dr. Watson, it's likely that Sherlock Holmes would not have been as interesting a character. Watson is in many ways the most important character, which is an interesting thing to contemplate because everyone wants to talk forever about Sherlock Holmes, the weird detective, and almost nobody wants to talk about his friend John, who's the actual narrator of almost all the stories. You know, Watson is the person who allows us to get to know Sherlock Holmes. Watson is a fairly ordinary person, although he has some extraordinary things happen to him. He's an Afghan war vet and has a terrible injury as a result, although Conan Doyle was never very specific about where the bullet actually hit him. But he is the, in the book I describe him as the dark matter of the Sherlockian universe. He kind of mysteriously holds the whole thing together. If you just have Sherlock Holmes on his own being an eccentric detective, it actually turns out to not be very interesting. You need the perspective of a more or less normal person who's the intelligent observer of all the action and basically brings together all the threads of the narrative in a coherent way that can be communicated as a story. You know, Watson has to understand what all the evidence is, so therefore Sherlock Holmes has to explain it all. Watson has to participate in the climactic scene where the criminal is captured because Holmes needs his muscle and backup. So we get to see it through Watson's eyes. So functionally, as a narrative device, he is kind of the glue. And Watson is perhaps the only emotional window we have into Holmes. He's the one person who actually loves Sherlock Holmes and who is loved back by Sherlock Holmes, as we come to find out over the course of the stories. And so he humanizes Holmes just enough to make him sympathetic rather than just this kind of robotic phenomenon. He's the narrator and he's the humanizer. And the couple stories where Watson isn't narrating just don't work as well. There are a couple stories that Conan Doyle tried to write late in his career that are narrated by Sherlock Holmes with no Watson in sight, and they are not well thought of. They're quite boring. Holmes proves to be a fairly one-dimensional narrator. And without the little bit of remove, there's really no mystery, because Watson's the one who's baffled, right? Watson's the one who can't figure out the case on our behalf is fumbling around, you know, not quite able to put 
two and two together until Holmes shows him what the solution is. Without that sort of intermediary filter, the whole structure of the mystery and the adventure sort of falls apart. Because there's no one to be, there's no one to have the experience of bafflement, puzzlement, and excitement on our behalf. So if we need Watson as the window to see into Holmes, what is it about Holmes's character that continues to intrigue us? Sort of self-made nature, I think, is part of the attraction. I mean, Holmes does not follow anybody's rules but his own. He doesn't have a wife or a boyfriend or any kind of romantic attachment. He has no desire to have a family. He has a completely unconventional domestic arrangement of his own devising. And he basically just dedicates himself to what he wants to do. And I think that that is a pretty powerful fantasy in a lot of ways. I mean, what would it be like to be someone who was so self-confident and so unattached, really? Watson's his only real friend, or at least we get that sense, that you could just do whatever you wanted. Whatever the formula Conan Doyle used to create Holmes in the Sherlockian universe, it seems that the character is here to stay. Not even Conan Doyle himself could kill Sherlock Holmes, and he tried. He wanted to do other things and was kind of tired of writing about this detective, so he contrived Holmes's death. Conveniently, no body was ever found, so he was able to bring him back when he needed to. But not long thereafter, and in fact, at the same time Conan Doyle was publishing his stories, there had started to be parodies in other magazines. There had started to be sort of tributes in newspapers. Conan Doyle wrote his own Sherlock Holmes play, and actor William Gillette starred in it, and it was a huge hit. But Conan Doyle had started to find Sherlock Holmes and his popularity annoying. Every time Holmes goes through these rounds of popularity, you're seeing it again with the Cumberbatch series, there are obsessed fans, and those obsessed fans were driving Conan Doyle kind of nuts. So he decided to just basically end it. And so he devised this um, completely implausible final story, which comes out of nowhere, has no connection to anything that has happened before, uh, where suddenly there's this super criminal named Professor Moriarty, and he and Holmes are engaged in this dramatic struggle of wits. Who will emerge on top? Holmes is about to destroy the Moriarty criminal organization. Moriarty wants to kill Holmes. Holmes has to run off to Switzerland to hide with Watson, and then in this incredibly convoluted series of events, ends up apparently falling to his death down a waterfall with Professor Moriarty as they fight it out man to man. It was basically Conan Doyle's attempt to just bring the whole thing to a halt. He wanted he wanted to move on and do other things. Um, the public, of course, was not really willing to allow him to do that. But Conan Doyle was pretty motivated by financial gain, given his poor background and his becoming accustomed to a certain lifestyle as he earned fame. He had, of course, by the mid-1890s, inconveniently killed his biggest moneymaker, so he, he ultimately decided to figure out a way to bring Holmes back. By 1901, Conan Doyle finally threw in the towel. Revived Sherlock Holmes in a story that's just as implausible and ridiculous as the story in which he was allegedly killed. So how was Conan Doyle able to create such an immortal character? And why is Sherlock Holmes so adaptable as to stand the test of time? I would say that one of the things that Conan Doyle does that's very difficult to replicate, because people try, people have written who knows how many Sherlock Holmes pastiches, which are the stories that attempt to do with Sherlock Holmes exactly what Conan Doyle does. Conan Doyle has a way of bringing things to life with, without a lot of description. Sherlock Holmes comes with a whole world. It's basically like him and all of the characters connected with him, the whole scene. If you can create something like that, something that feels that immersive and rich, then you're going to have a long run with a character. But I think people overburden their world creation in some ways. Conan Doyle did it with very light strokes. There's a character over here. Oh, he's the smarter older brother. He's only going to be in two scenes in the entire saga. There's the diabolical mathematician Napoleon of crime. We're only going to mention him one time. You know, so he had this sort of unintentional economy about how he brought the Holmes world to life. So there's a lot of grist for the imagination that Conan Doyle just hints at. And I think that that is actually one of the reasons that those stories have endured because it feels like there's so much that's been been left untold by the creator that there's more work to be done on it and so that gets everybody's imagination spinning and creating all this additional material about the the character and creating the mythology around it
So it might not be possible for us to use Conan Doyle's formula and hope to produce the same legendary result, but it's certainly possible for a writer to create a memorable character, though this is trickier than some writers may think. That's why, in the publishing business, there are editors whose job it is to help authors build solid characters. These editorial wizards are called developmental editors, and they make the first pass on a manuscript, pointing out ways to improve pacing, structure, style, plot, and characters. And here to talk about this editorial magic is one of our Girls Friday who oversees our pool of developmental editors. My name is Christina Henri de Tesson. Christina is the VP of editorial at Girl Friday, and she's also a seasoned developmental editor. So she makes it her job to know when a character is well-realized. It's one of those things, you, you know it when you see it, and you really know it when you don't. And Christina can tell when she's reading a good character. At its very best, it's like making a new friend. You feel like you just want to get back to it all the time. And it's wanting to know who this person is and what they're going to reveal to you about the world. And, and I suppose there's a little bit of a voyeuristic element to it is that you get to really step into someone else's shoes. At its very best, there's also a real sense of loss when you get to the end of a book. That sense of loss means you've also been in a really great place with someone. So for Christina, what makes a good character? It all boils down to authenticity. You lose me the minute someone feels caricatured or too predictable. But Christina says there's a difference between an authentic character and just an overly quirky character. There's a sweet spot. You don't want to be caricatured and trite, and yet you don't want someone to feel so full of quirks and surprises that they're completely full of contradictions, and then they lose credibility for you as well. So you're looking for that sweet spot where they feel human. So to bring out a character's humanity, Christina says a writer needs to be willing to give the character flaws, and then to set obstacles in front of him to show his vulnerability and expose his flaws. Christina warns authors against trying to stay at arm's length. When a character is facing an obstacle or an opportunity for growth, Christina recommends diving into the muck with him. I worked on a novel recently where the person was having trouble really delving into a person's internal conflict. She sort of wrapped it up all too quickly, and I think managing to stay in that hard place where your character's a little tormented is where the real magic happens. You want to go in deep. And a developmental editor helps a writer go deep enough to find that magic. Editors are really there to make sure readers care about the characters, and that can take many forms. But a character doesn't always have to be likable, but you have to make the reader care. And so transcendence and growth are very important. So making sure that that character learns something along the way. We want to see them suffer a little bit, and then we want to see them <laughs> emerge on the other side triumphant. And to convince a reader to go along for a ride with a character, the reader always needs to be made aware of the character's motivation and goal. Making sure that the stakes and the goals and the conflicts of the character are clear to the reader so that we always know where they're going. They can't meander too much. They can meander a bit, but we need to make sure we understand what their end goal is and then, you know, all the different steps along the way. But making sure the reader knows what the character's motivation is at all times doesn't mean that the writer needs to explain to the reader what the motivation is at all times. Writers don't trust themselves enough, and so they show they show a character beautifully through a scene, and they and they show the character's observations, and the, and the reader is doing that detective work of sort of interpreting the scene and figuring out what's intended, and then the writer does themselves a huge disservice by then telling it all at the end, just to make sure you really got it. And at that point, the reader snaps out of it. You want the person to stay engaged. And so a lot of times I find myself trimming out the telling at the end and saying, you know, have the confidence to let this stand on its own because the reader is going to figure this out and the reader is going to be more engaged by doing so. The more a writer can make a character's actions, dialogue, and reactions speak for them, the better. And one of the ways to do this is to avoid having the character be by himself too much. Because you end up with this endless internal monologue. They have to be out there interacting with other people. Can she have a confidant? Can she have, is there some other way she can be conveying this information so that she's not just circling around in her own head? One of the best ways to convey information about a character is through well-crafted dialogue. Great dialogue makes me swoon. Like, it just, when it's really going well, I just feel like it feels so real and you can put yourself there, even if it's a place you've never lived, a time period you don't know, you suddenly feel like you can relate to this person's world and that's a very powerful sensation. When editing, Christina takes a close look at the dialogue to make sure the voice stays true to the character. 
For example, if the character is a teenager, does he sound like a teenager? To write believable dialogue, Christina recommends spending time with the kinds of people your characters are based on. So if you're writing young adult fiction, spend lots of time with teenagers and learn how they speak. But Christina says that a writer shouldn't stay too true to reality. I think one of the things that makes fiction so compelling is that it takes real life and it condenses it down. And so dialogue is part of that. It's making us sound like ourselves, but better than we would normally sound, more interesting and scintillating and witty and sharp. And there's a danger because you you want it to be revealing character and you also want it to be driving the plot forward. So you can't have people just sitting there bantering endlessly back and forth, which sometimes happens. I say, this is really fun, but we're not going and we're, we're going around in circles here a little bit. So to create a memorable character that a reader can care about, an author needs to write good dialogue, to show action instead of explaining it, to offer opportunities for character growth, and to make sure the character is nuanced, that a good character has flaws, and an evil character has a good side, that a physically strong character has weaknesses, and a seemingly weak character has hidden strength. You want to make sure that characters aren't black and white. You want to create this little bit of sympathy that you have for them so that you care and you realize that there is some internal conflict there. The minute you introduce nuance, you're already moving away from character and and you're drawing the reader in because they can't help but want to sort of understand the, the tension there. To create a believable internal conflict, the writer needs to know her character inside and out. And to do this, Christina recommends doing a lot of work up front to develop the character. Write lots more than ultimately appears in the book. She compares this exercise to an iceberg, where only a little piece of the character shows up in the finished product. But the writer knows how much more to the character there is. You might have reams of pages on that character's background, on how they grew up, on whether they're the middle child, on whether they were rich or poor, on what they always wanted to be when they grew up. And you can use that material to know your character really well and make their reactions that do appear in the book feel natural and authentic. Knowing how much of that to trim out becomes, I think, difficult because you don't want to bog a story down with that background. But knowing that character really well, I think, is essential to getting to that place where you can predict what their emotions are going to look like. Understanding a character completely gets a writer closer to making a memorable character because the reader gets hooked by the internal conflict and how the conflict will resolve. Like if that feels really compelling, I'm there for the rest of the ride like I want. I I can't tear myself away. From the Margins is sponsored by Visual Quill. Visual Quill is the award-winning creative agency that specializes in custom creative work for authors and publishers. Ever wonder how those hunky models on the cover of romance novels look so hunky? For certain covers, it sometimes takes a skilled cover designer like Visual Quill's Joy Bear to use Photoshop expertly enough to piece together a composite hero that looks naturally hunky. So this was where a lot of photoshopping happens. Had to find him the right hair. I end up putting his head on someone else's body, but the guy's body wasn't quite as bulky as his, so I had to bulk him up. Definitely had to use some of those Photoshop features that are used to bulk up models or slim down models. From beautiful covers photoshopped to fit the story to marketing materials and consulting, Visual Quill helps authors and publishers get their books out and seen. Get in touch today. Go to visualquill.com, click on the contact button, and enter the special code MARGIN for a free consultation. That's visualquill.com, offer code MARGIN. In this next segment, we hear from an author who puts into practice the exercise of writing down pages and pages about a character that might never be used. Elizabeth George is the author of more than two dozen novels, almost 20 of which are part of the Inspector Lindley mystery series. 
For Elizabeth, character always comes first, then plot. For me as a writer, story has always arisen from character. And it's through answering the questions about character that I start getting the idea for the story. So it's not the reverse. And, and what I find that that does for me is that I don't end up with characters that I'm trying to manipulate through a plot. Because what occurs is that the characters inform the plot. The plot doesn't inform the characters. Creating a character analysis for each character is the first thing Elizabeth does when she starts working on a novel. She says this helps to create characters with depth. I can't create a character on the spot the first time the character walks into the scene. I need to know who my characters are before they ever get to the book, before I ever get to the book, before the plot is anything more than just a basic idea in my head. And for the kind of books I write, when I talk about plot, I'm just saying that I need to know, you know, the killer, the victim, and the motive, essentially, the, you know, the basic elements of the crime. But more than that, I, I don't really know until I begin to create the characters. When Elizabeth is creating a character, she looks at the character from every possible aspect. I act as if I'm the character's biographer, sociologist, psychologist, psychiatrist, physician, spiritual advisor, whatever. And I'm looking at the character in all of these different ways as if the character were a prism and I keep turning the prism and gazing in a different facet of it. So for Elizabeth, what distinguishes a well-written character from a poorly written character? I think poorly written characters are characters that are one-dimensional. There's no depth to them. That what's happening is that in the novel, the story's being driven by the plot instead of the characters. So how does one go about creating a complex character? Elizabeth makes sure that each character has his own agenda in every scene, and that he's in each scene to serve his own purposes, not the purposes of the plot. And the driving force behind each character is what Elizabeth calls the core need. Everybody who exists has something that really is at the, at the very base of, of their behavior, that's really motivating their behavior. And most of the time it grows, it grows out of the past and specifically out of, you know, out of the childhood. While Elizabeth is creating a character analysis, she's exploring the character's background and birth order and their family relationships and their sexuality. By learning everything else about a character, she's able to see what motivates that character. What drives him? And so the core need is that thing, that thing at the very, very bottom of who they are, that is really at the heart of why they behave, how they behave. And then juxtaposed with that is what Elizabeth calls the character's pathological maneuver. What they do when that core need isn't being met, or better said, what do they do when they're under stress? So as an example, picture a character who had a parental relationship that led her to believe that she always had to strive to please the parent. And so what that person is always trying to do is to produce in order to please, to produce in order to please, to achieve in order to please. And so that's then the core need. But it affects everything that the character does, even though the character is really just trying to please the parents at this really uh, primal level. So then you ask yourself, when the character can't achieve at that high level and that person feels stressed, how does that stress manifest? So it may manifest itself in some sort of obsessive behavior. It may manifest itself in some kind of compulsion that the character feels that uh, he or she must do. And in the story, it's necessary to make the characters feel the stress. Otherwise, there's no conflict and really no story. Elizabeth recalls a particular story that one of her past students submitted that had this fundamental flaw. There was no conflict. Her characters weren't challenged. I'll never forget that. It was a, in the first couple of pages. The detective, he's a private investigator, and his sister works for him. And, and uh, he really, he and his sister get along so well. They really love each other, and they've worked together for, for many years. And they are on their way over to the family's house for a St. Patrick's Day dinner. And they always have this big St. Patrick's Day dinner because um, they always have corned beef and cabbage, and the mother is a fabulous 
fabulous cook and all the kids gather around and have this meal with the mother and with their stepfather who is a fabulous wonderful warm-hearted person <laughs> and so as you're reading this is you know you get it's it's more and more ridiculous because it, you know you're waiting for something to happen you're waiting for some sign of conflict for anything, but there isn't any at all <laughs> so everything's wonderful everybody's great and uh so I, I call that white bread or sort of like the wonder bread characters there's there's nothing there. There's no meat. There's just like a piece of white bread on the plate. So say you've thoroughly thought about a character and you're ready to put the character to the page. How do you then go about showing the reader who this character is? For this, Elizabeth says she uses a tool that she calls a THAD, which stands for Talking Head Avoidance Device. She uses THADs to steer dialogue away from just the typical he said, she said structure and use it as an opportunity to reveal character. It's an action that's going on during the scene while the characters are talking. And it serves to, it can serve many different functions. Its primary function is to reveal character, to reveal something about the two characters talking. It can also act as foreshadowing. It can, in a crime novel, it can be a clue. It can, it can serve the interest of moving the plot forward. It can do all kinds of different things. What Elizabeth teaches her students to do is to see every scene as a potential arena to reveal character. And it can't be just something like lighting a cigarette. That doesn't work. It doesn't necessarily reveal, well, it doesn't reveal character at all, unless there's something peculiar about the cigarette or the person smoking, like let's say the person has had one of those horrible surgeries where he has to put the cigarette up to the hole in his, <laughs> in his trachea. Now that reveals something. So we want the characters we read about to be flawed. We want to see them as human. And for some writers, the way to get to that humanity might be through investigating the character thoroughly before starting the story at all. I attended a workshop Elizabeth taught last year where she had the students do an abridged version of a character analysis. It's a rigorous process, and she describes it in detail in her book titled Right Away. I remember choosing the name for the character first, and then diving into his backstory, stream of consciousness style. We only worked on the character analysis for about 10 minutes, but I still think about that character to this day and wonder what he's up to. So there are the characters that are legendary, there are the characters that are memorable, and then there are the characters that we just need to see more of. These are often characters who are minorities in race, class, religion, or sexual orientation. And one of the places where it might be the most crucial to see a diversity of characters is in children's middle grade and young adult literature. When middle grade author Vicki Van Sickle was growing up, she had a favorite type of character. I was really interested in intrepid female protagonists that I could sort of look up to, but also imagine being in their position. So that meant I read a lot of Nancy Drew and Babysitter's Club, Judy Bloom, and people that reflected, if not what my life was like, um, sort of what my attitude was like. Vicky says that at that age, when you don't really think of yourself as a kid anymore, but you're also not a young adult, you're just kind of stuck in this awkward middle stage, is one of the most crucial times for growth. And so seeing yourself reflected in fiction can be really empowering. I think if you're looking for comfort or to see yourself reflected, that the most potent years are those 9 through 12 years. She says it's not that kids in that age range can't read up to the YA level, but YA literature is often about relationships, whereas middle grade is about finding your own tribe and your own path. It gives you that confidence at a time where I think confidence is at an all-time low. So Vicky wanted to write middle grade books where a broader range of kids could see themselves reflected. She's the author of a series of books that feature Clarissa and Benji, who have been friends since first grade. Benji is the sweeter and more forgiving of the two, and Clarissa is the bold, opinionated, and feisty narrator, and Benji's fierce protector. But it's not until book three that Benji comes out to Clarissa as gay. 
I really wanted to look at children, first of all, who had a boy-girl relationship that wasn't necessarily romantic. I felt that a lot of the books that I was reading, the girl character would always have a crush on the boy character. And I didn't see that sort of friendship. And then the other thing was I have known in my life as a child, as a babysitter, uh, as a camp counselor, as an adult, a lot of boys that didn't come out till much later. And I just started to wonder where they saw themselves in fiction. Vicky says it's important for kids to see their sexuality reflected in fiction at that age, because that's when they start thinking about it. You know, I remember being 9, 10, 11 and loving Judy Bloom because she talked about periods and bras and masturbation and all that stuff that, you know, maybe you don't learn about in school or your parents are too embarrassed to talk about, but kids are looking for that information. And maybe they're getting it on the internet or in movies, but books can be really safe space for that. Vicky says that not giving kids the opportunity to read about these things until they're young adults is missing a huge opportunity for growth. And not just for the kids who are struggling with a sexual orientation that might be different from straight, but for all kids who, after reading about it, might learn enough empathy to stand up for someone who's being picked on. Vicky says her character Benji was largely inspired by a boy who she used to babysit. He loved to sew. And his parents were worried about it. They were very conservative, um, that it was weird that their son in grade four liked to sew. But for Christmas, his parents bought him essentially the easy bake oven of sewing machines. And he used to make stuff on it and he would, you know, he would make things and bring them to school. And he was teased mercilessly for it. And then there was one day where they had a garage sale and I saw that the sewing machine was out there and they sold it. And because he just couldn't put up with it anymore. And then he was all boasting about how he got rid of it. And that was a stupid thing. And he doesn't do that anymore. And it just sort of broke my heart that this kid who loved that like more than anything was willing to give it up just to sort of make the bullying stop and to sort of pretend that it was a phase he was in and he's over it. And I have no idea if he actually is gay. I don't know where he is now. But I never sort of forgot that, and part of me feels like, well, I should have, I should have known, or I should have noticed, or I should have stuck up for him more. And so, you know, I'm thinking of him a lot when I'm thinking of Benji. So Vicky wanted to respect Benji's character enough to have him come out in his own time. He always felt very authentic to me, and I always knew that he was gay, and Benji knows that he's gay. But because of sort of the the turmoil and the strife and the bullying around it, it wasn't safe for him to come out. And I didn't intend to write three books originally, but when I was done with the first book, I, I felt like I wasn't done yet. And so I had the sort of middle story and then I finished the second book and I'm like, you know, I'm still not done yet. And then I got to the third book and it felt like it was the right time. For Benji, it was it's the summer right before high school where a lot of people sort of reinvent themselves or become more of who they want to be. So it just, it felt right. But again, I, I knew from the first book, but it just wasn't he wasn't ready and so I felt like I was doing him justice that way and and so it was it's always Clarissa's narrative but this was a chance for Benji to to really take the spotlight and and come into his own and then be supported but throughout all three books Vicky had to navigate how to write Benji as gay without stereotyping him but while also giving her young readers enough clues to figure it out and I, you know, I, I have um, adult friends who are gay, and so I talked to them a little bit about it because I didn't want to, you know, as a straight woman, assume too much, and I didn't want to come across as stereotypical or insensitive. She didn't want Benji to come across as too one-dimensional or too obvious. Uh, the one I probably get the most feedback about is he's, he's very into theater, particularly musical theater, and people feel that that's a big stereotype, which in my experience, my background is in musical theater. So the first friends I made that were gay were in musical theater, and I know about their backgrounds and I know them very well. So although it might seem like a stereotype to some people, it's actually my experience and their experience. And so that's where that came from. So I, I might have been nervous about it at first, but I do feel quite strongly in Benji's character, and I feel that he's quite authentic that way, and it just felt right for him. And again, he's a reluctant actor. He sort of, in the middle book, gets roped into it by his friend, and then ends up really loving it and really wanting to succeed at it, and finding this whole new group, which is, you know, I think true of a lot of people who find theater for whatever reason. It is sort of a, an extended family and a safe space. In the first book, he deals with some pretty bad bullying, and I, even though he asked Clarissa, and then he ends up meeting some new friends who stick up for him, I really wanted him to have a safe space in terms of a community. I feel that he found that, and that was an important part of the whole arc of the series. 
She wants her readers to feel hopeful. And even though there are hard things that happen in the books, Vicky says she hopes her young readers feel comforted by her books. I always tell people that, you know, it's not that children's books have happy endings, but they have hopeful endings, especially in that 9 to 12 age range. A lot of kids are dealing with really, really intense things, and they need to know that hope is just as important as happy. In our final segment, we hear from Stacy Lee, an author of young adult literature, about what it was like growing up not finding many characters that looked like her in the books she read. She remembers the first time she saw the book Five Chinese Brothers when she was about seven years old. I saw Chinese people in that book and I was really blown away. I didn't even know that you could do that. The people in the book were portrayed as, you know, all looking alike, not just the brothers, but all the townspeople, they all sort of had these slanty eyes, this very yellow skin. You know, when I read books, it was just the assumption was that they were going to be white people. I really didn't question that until I got old enough to understand what that meant. Stacy says she can count on one hand the number of books with Chinese Americans that she did see. It wasn't really until my 20s when I was in law school that I asked myself, where are all the books with Asian Americans? I had consulted with a librarian and asked her if she knew any good ones. And the only thing she could think of was the Joy Luck Club. And that was, I think, because the movie had just come out. So I went up and down the aisles of this library looking for Asian American authors on the spine. I went at it backwards. And I was able to find a few, but just not enough. And I do remember at that point becoming very interested in books by African Americans because I realized that a lot of the the experiences and the feelings of alienation and marginalization were very similar to what I had experienced. Stacy was one of three Chinese girls growing up who attended her elementary school, and the other two were her sisters. And I think there was just, I don't know, ignorance. I don't think children are intentionally mean, but there are certain things that they say and certain rhymes that they they tell you. I don't know where they got them, but almost every week I would get these, these racist insults. Let me see if I can remember it. Chinese, Japanese, something dirty knees. And it involved slanting their eyes. And I don't hear it anymore, um, thankfully. My kids live in a very diverse area where they they aren't subjected to these things. But that was a pretty common chant. Of course, it was very alienating. I don't think my sisters and I, we've all discussed this and we didn't find many friendships growing up in school and we had each other. So that was really the comfort. Stacy's mother's side came to the United States in the late 19th century and took up roots in California. Stacy's dad came to the States in the 1950s by himself when he was about 11 years old. And he came to a country which really didn't really want him, didn't really want another Chinese person. He went to go live with a sister who he didn't know very well and didn't speak a word of English. <laughs> so those teenage years were very difficult for him. You know, he was failing out of school and <laughs> he reached a point where his school counselor said to him, if you don't do something about your study habits or learning English, you're just, you're going to be a farmer. You're going to be a, you know, you're going to just fail out of life. And I think it was at that point he made a decision that he was going to have a better life here in the U.S. despite all these things against him. Stacy says her dad was the inspiration for writing her book titled Under a Painted Sky, because he was someone who really pulled himself up by his bootstraps. For him, it was more of a traditional immigrant story, and that's really why I came to write this book. I wanted to explore what it would have been like for a Chinese person living in the United States during time where they really weren't wanted here. Under a Painted Sky is a YA novel about a Chinese girl in 1849 Missouri who commits a crime in self-defense and, knowing that the law will not side with her, decides to flee down the Oregon Trail along with a runaway slave disguised as cowboys. Stacy chose her characters based on the historical events of the time. 
Slavery was very much at the forefront of the American debate, so having a runaway slave as one of the main characters seemed like a natural choice. But Stacy was careful to avoid stereotypes. As a Chinese American, I'm very cognizant of the kind of stereotypes that we have as Asian Americans. I definitely wanted to avoid the ignorant slave trope as much as I wanted to avoid the smart Asian girl trope. She said that in order to make her characters three-dimensional, she looks to a diverse group of beta readers to help point out places that need improvement. Readers help me a lot, my beta readers, my critique partners, in identifying those places um, where I might have blind spots. But the industry tells authors that readers don't want diverse characters. My agent, when she took me on, she was very clear in telling me that this would be an uphill climb because this wasn't the kind of book publishers would be interested in. Yet she felt that this is a story that deserved to be told. So I have to give her a lot of credit for believing in that. Before Stacy wrote Under a Painted Sky, she wrote a middle grade book that she took to a conference. I was matched with an editor to give me feedback on it, and the editor said that, unfortunately, multicultural books don't sell. And, and I never had thought of my middle grade book. It was a fantasy as an Asian American book or a multicultural book. It was just a book about a kid who is trying to find his parents who have been lost at sea. So, um, you know, just in one swoop relegated it to a multicultural book that wouldn't sell. And so there was that perception. But and at the time, I bought into it. I thought, OK, well, maybe she's right. Maybe multicultural books don't sell. And I mean, looking at my own experience, my mother used to take us to the library every week. So. So I was sensitive to that, and so I tried to make my character white. <laughs> that didn't go very well, and I ended up shelving that manuscript. But Stacy has since dismissed the idea that multicultural books don't sell. I think that any book that receives the right marketing dollars and the right support from their publisher is going to sell. Not only does Stacy advocate for diverse characters in her own books, but she helped found We Need Diverse Books an organization that was created in response to the abysmal diversity statistics put out by the Cooperative Children's Book Center. Of the children's books published and received by the CCBC in 2015, a research library that gathers statistics about diversity in children's books, only 10% were written by African Americans, American Indians, or First Nation peoples, Asian Americans, or Latinos and only 14% included characters of these races. And the number, on average, has not exceeded 10% over the last 20 years. And at that same time, BookCon released its all-star lineup of children's authors, and they were all white male. And the uh, rest of the conference lineup was primarily white people. This galvanized us to have a Twitter conversation about the serious lack of diversity in children's books. And that led to a hashtag campaign where we invited people to tweet pictures of why we need diverse books. That campaign ended up going viral. So the organization was founded in 2014 to actually implement actions for some of the issues being discussed. The organization has started internships with major publishers to address diversity from the inside out. According to the Diversity Baseline Survey by Lee and Lowe Books, the publishing industry overall is 79% white. So the more diverse publishing can be, the more that will translate to diverse books, I think. We Need Diverse Books also has grants for writers of color. Every year, it gives out the Walter Award, given in honor of Walter Dean Myers, who was a pioneer in diversity for children's literature. We have book talking kits for schools and librarians. Those are ways that educators can talk about books using universal themes. We Need Diverse Books also, of course, has a list of diverse children's books on their website. And I had a list of books with their covers that I presented to my daughter. She's 12 now. And they were all diverse books. And I was a little uh, hesitant, I guess, to give it to her because at the one time I wanted to see what she, how she would react to seeing all these diverse people on the cover. But at the same time, I was afraid for how she would react. So I showed it to her and... To my delight, she said she wanted to read all of them. That was wonderful to hear. I think this current generation is much more accepting of diverse people on the cover. Maybe it's not so much the kids themselves, but the, the parents. The parents are more open to um, showing their kids diverse people, and the work continues. 
So characters can be windows through which to know and understand other people's lives. Characters can also be mirrors in which we see ourselves reflected. That's why it's critical to not limit the range of characters, because through characters, we see what we're capable of as humans. We learn empathy by putting ourselves in other people's shoes. So doesn't it make sense that we should be creating characters and supporting the creation of characters that represent the range of humanity? To find out more about any of the guests featured on this episode of From the Margins, visit girlfridayproductions.com. And do you know bookish friends or writer friends you think might like the podcast? Be sure to let them know they can find it on our website, or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever they get their podcasts. Special thanks to Zach Dundas, C. Henry, Elizabeth George, Stacey Lee, and Vicki Van Sickle. Our fact checker for this episode was Jay Whitney Dever. Our production assistant was Devin Simpson. Our sound mixer is Reed Harvey. Girl Friday Productions is a writing, editorial, and book development company, and the place the world goes to tell its story. Find out more at girlfridayproductions.com. <laughs> <laughs>